thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. At 9.36, exactly, we welcome the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, lecturer at the University of Cambridge, joining us via Zoom from the UK. Great to have you back, Dr. Smith. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Cape Town is a buzz this morning. A uh, bit of a ticker tape parade happening in the city streets. And, you know, who's on that bus with the Web Alice trophy. Uh, so, yeah, we can't wait to get out of the studio and onto the streets a little later on when uh, that event happens. Oh, well, good for you. I, I have a little bit of a South Africa story to impart, which is that a new young doctor started working with us just recently. And it turns out, she's a Cape Tonian, turns out her mum, Anne, is a listener. So good morning, Anne. Uh, thank you very much for making the best selection to listen to the best radio station that Cape Town has to offer. Well, that's, that's such good. You know, I believe in synchronicity. Maybe that should be the first question, but we'll leave it for next time. We have a question in, and I think we should start there. Um, somebody wants to understand the principle on which a boomerang works. Right. Well, a boomerang is shaped like a wing. So as you throw it, the air travelling over the curved surface of the boomerang exerts an effect a bit like it does on the wing of an aircraft. And you pull air down onto the curved surface because air as it travels over a surface sticks to a surface. And if that surface is curved, the air follows the contour of the surface. It's called the coander effect. And so you shape your boomerang in such a way that as you throw it, you end up with air being pulled down onto that curved surface, which exerts a force, which gives it some lift, but also exerts a force in in other directions. So it's possible to make a boomerang so that, or you do make a boomerang, so that as it goes outwards and it feels this force pulling it both upwards but around in a circle, it, it wants to come back to you as well. It's to do with the, the shape and the way the air is guided over the surface, which means that when you resolve all the forces, if you get the boomerang of certain shapes, you can get it to go out and come back. Then uh, we have a question from Vernon, and he was really out of the starting blocks really early this morning. Um, For the Naked Scientist, he says, a wind farm uses a very large fan on a turbine to generate electricity. There are concerns about bird strikes, but these blades rotate at a slow speed compared to a propeller on a plane. Do the birds not see these slow rotating blades? That's the first question. And then he says, will these turbines still generate the same amount of electricity if the blades were to be placed in a horizontal plane, that's a helicopter rotor style, instead of their current vertical plane, i.e. propeller style? Uh, And will this horizontal plane reduce the amount of bird strikes? Hi, Vernon. Well, the bottom line is that a wind turbine is extracting energy from moving air. So to get the most energy out of the moving air, you've got to present the biggest cross-sectional area, in other words, the area swept out by the blades, that you can, within the constraints of what you can design and build practically, to interface and interrupt the flow of air to extract the most energy from it. So if you were to tip your wind turbine on its side and have a horizontal wind turbine, 
then you're limiting the flow of air passing across the blades that can give you energy. So you would have a much less performant wind turbine. Now, in terms of the speed they're rotating at, this is a myth. The reason they look like they're going slowly is because they are absolutely huge. And if you've seen the pictures of London and that enormous great wheel that goes around, the Millennium Wheel that they built for the Millennium, uh, that is about the size of a reasonable-sized wind turbine. Some are much bigger than that. And so the tip speed, the, the, the speed described by the ends of the turbine blades, is hundreds of kilometres an hour that they're turning at. And the evidence for this is that when they build them out in the sea, because one of the objections to wind turbines is that they can cause problems for wildlife, they're also noisy, and they can be unsightly under certain circumstances, people say, well, let's put them at sea you end up finding that they fall apart much more quickly at sea, not just because they're in a corrosive environment, but because spray is hitting the rotating blade surfaces and each droplet weighs about a gram or so, if it's a big one, that is going to be like a cricket ball hitting a cricket bat doing hundreds of miles an hour. And the force that it imparts on the blade is quite considerable and it knocks holes in the blades. Now, the reason these are a problem for birds is partly that they're going that fast, which means that birds can be caught out by them, but also they create around the edges of the blades areas of intensely low pressure. We were talking just now about boomerangs, and as there's an air flow across the surface of a blade, a curved surface, the air is accelerated in a certain direction, which leaves a void in another direction. So you get a, a, a loss of air or a lack of air relatively speaking behind the blade and you get a low pressure area and if a bird flies into that low pressure area then it's like you suddenly going into space from being being on the earth's surface and you've your body is feeling much less pressure so your lungs can expand and a number of bird casualties have been described which have injuries to their lungs consistent with them flying into these low pressure zones and the air in their lungs suddenly expanding because of the low pressure and this then causes damage to their lungs it's like a scuba diver with a lung full of air under pressure coming up from the seafloor too quickly and popping their lungs so there's a number of reasons why wind turbines can be a problem for birds they're certainly not going slowly so birds can make mistakes and be hit by them but also the low pressures created around the blades can be damaging to birds and other wildlife on the topic of lungs and maybe it confirms my belief in synchronicity james is on the line from simonstown you want to you have a question about lungs james uh, yes funnily enough uh, what are the circumstances where the lungs of people doing, uh, I, I imagine, dangerous work underwater, are filled with a liquid. Hi, James. This was put into the public domain when people watched that film, The Abyss. And the rationale behind this was that the people were trying to dive to such a great depth that it became very, very difficult to breathe normal gases underwater. And so they switched to a liquid which being incompressible meant that the person could still breathe at depth. That's the the rationale behind that. Now, there's a grain or a kernel of truth to this in the sense that as you go underwater, for every 10 metres you descend underwater, you feel an increase in pressure on your body because water's much more dense than air, as though you've gone a complete atmosphere further underwater. So at the surface of the water, you're breathing air, which has an atmosphere's worth of pressure. You go 10 metres down, you're now experiencing air or pressure at two atmospheres. 20 metres down, it's three atmospheres and so on. This means that the gas that you're breathing, because your scuba apparatus has a regulator, which is delivering gas to you at the surrounding pressure so that you, you can still breathe, 
And this means the gas you're breathing is coming to you at a higher and higher pressure. And if it's at a higher and higher pressure, it's at a higher and higher density. And the deeper you go, the more dense the gas becomes until you get to a point where it's so dense, it's actually really hard to breathe. And this is why we have a constraint on how deep we can go, putting aside other things like nitrogen and people getting the bends and so on when they resurface and and um, re-equilibration as they come back up it's that as you get to a certain depth you can't breathe normal air anymore because it becomes so dense that it's like breathing soup and it's so much work to breathe you just can't breathe fast enough to gas exchange efficiently enough to not pass out underwater so at very extreme depths divers will then start to substitute other mixtures helium with oxygen in it, for example, helium is much less dense. It's single atoms, and for this reason, being much lighter, it's less dense and easier to breathe, even under considerable pressure. So they substitute helium, but even that has limits. And so there has been some exploration of using chemicals like perfluorocarbons, which have the ability to to soak up, like blotting paper, huge amounts of, of air and oxygen, and then impart those across mucous membranes and across the respiratory surfaces in your lungs. And people have done experiments where they've got respiratory liquids like this. They they never come to fruition because it's very, very difficult to do this in a way that, that really makes it practical and safe and worth doing. But in theory, it can be done. And people have, have explored this, not just for diving, but also for people who have bad lung injuries and premature babies, for example, where it might be possible to ventilate them without forcing air in under high pressure you could use a fluid to do this but it is very very difficult to do it's not something we've evolved to do to breathe without our airways full of liquid and the viscous drag of moving liquid backwards and forwards is a problem and so it's not simple for the body to adapt to this or accommodate to this and you have to make very specialist ways of doing this and so one on the one hand you get some benefits on the other hand you get some disbenefits but that is the the basis behind why you would substitute a liquid for gas because even helium becomes a problem to breathe as the pressure continues to increase let's go to the voice notes my question for dr chris smith this morning is which is smarter dogs or cats we have a dog a scottish terrier about 10 years old i think he's reasonably smart uh, although he often walks into things and bumps his head. Um, And then we've, for the last week, had a new kitten join our family. She's about 12 weeks old, a calico. And um, she seems incredibly smart. So that's my question. Which one is smarter, Uh, Benji or Rosie? I sense a family row here that uh, someone's backing Benji and someone's backing Rosie and they want me to arbitrate. The answer is you can't really define what smart means in these terms because are we using the word smart to mean what suits the animal or are we using smart to define what suits the human owner? There's an old saying that dogs have owners and cats have staff or butlers. Dogs have evolved alongside us for the last ten to 20,000 years That's the fossil record we have going back showing the domestication of dogs from wolves. And over that time, they've evolved to become very, very good at interacting with us, relating to us, having some kind of mutual beneficial arrangement where dogs provide protection, alarm, companionship and so on. And we derive benefits from them. They derive benefits from us looking after them and feeding them and so on. And so a dog that we regard as smart is often a dog which 
we regard as very biddable. You can train that dog, you can incite it to do things. And different breeds of dogs seem to be more biddable and trainable than others. Some are just nuts. Some have very low attention span. Some are very, very, they're like dog ADHD. They're very, very hard to train and they're very, very hard to get them to, to cotton on to what you want them to do. Others, on the other hand, really, really very good. Border Collies, for example, that you use to round up sheep are the most biddable dogs. Those and I think Labradors are quite far up the list as well. Labradors, partly easy to train because they have a genetic aberration that means the, this gene that's adrift called the pro-opio-melanocortin gene. It's involved in appetite and satiety, which means Labradors are permanently hungry, which means that they're very easy to train because they'll do absolutely anything for food. Now, that doesn't mean that dog is smart. It means that it will do anything to make you happy. A cat, on the other hand, does not really care whether you're happy or not. A cat only cares if you feed it or not. And you can do the experiment on yourself. Stop feeding Benji and Benji will still be there looking thinner and more sorry for himself. I assume Benji's the dog in a week or two. Stop feeding Rosie and in about two minutes, Rosie will have found another owner who will just put out fish heads and kitty cat and anything else that, that Rosie will eat. And Rosie won't care that you now feel uh, mournful because she no longer loves you. That's the difference. Now, is the dog smarter or the cat smarter? Dogs are, are good at doing what we want them to do. Cats are good at not doing what we want them to do. Cats do their own thing, but both left to their own devices are pretty good at fending for themselves. So you could argue, well, if push came to shove and they had to fend for themselves, they're equally smart. That was fascinating and something that I'm going to share with my wife if, she, if she's missed out on that answer. Let's go to another voice note. There's uh, quite a couple there. Good morning, Clarence and Dr. Smith. Um, okay, I'm a Formula One fan. And I'd like to know, well, how does the aerodynamics work? I understand downforce, the wings, the air pushing the car down, but how does the ground effect work? How does that, that low pressure cause a suction? And then are you guys talking about vortices and that type of thing? How does a vortice seal a floor to create a, for what I can tell, a negative pressure to cause it to be sucked to the car ground or something like that? I'd just be curious to know how the, the aerodynamics work on a Formula One car. Thank you, Jason. Hi, Jason. Well, when you look at these cars, they have effectively massive great spoilers on the back and they have fins on the front. What's the purpose of that? Well, the purpose of that is to give the car more traction because as the car goes along the road, the thing that's propelling it down the road is the ability of the tyres to transfer energy from the engine to the road surface through friction so in other words they've got to rotate grip the road and push the car along now the best way you do that is you push the car down onto the road but as the car speed increases there's a lot of air going under the car which is trying to lift up the car because the car wants to almost flip over with its nose in the air and do a cartwheel once you get to a very very high speed because the air running into the front of the car is trying to lift it up so you put these various fins and spoilers on to drive the car down onto the road surface harder and harder the faster it goes and this increases control it increases traction and means that as you go faster you still get good grip on the road so you continue to have good control and you can continue to transfer energy from the en engine through the wheels and accelerate the car across the road surface. The way that you get that effect is that as you drive the air up over the fin, because of Newton's third law, which is for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, as the air strikes the various aerofoils, 
it pushes against them. And if you push on something, Newton told us, it pushes back on you equally hard. So if the air is deflected upwards over the car surface, that must be pushing, the car must be pushing the air upwards to get it out of the way and up over the car, which means the air is pushing down on the car equally hard. And so when you create these various structures around the car surface, you guide the air upwards and push air upwards, which pushes you downwards. And you can also do various clever tricks like an aircraft wing. You can do things like make the air be pulled upwards so that the air pulls you downwards. So in other words, if you've got a wing that curves from the front to the back upwards and it's a curved surface, the air will be pulled up and over that wing surface and if you're pulling the air up it will also pull you down so with the top surface you can drive air upwards and that pushes you down and with the bottom surface you can pull air upwards and that pushes you down and so you can manipulate all of these effects and there the formula one teams have armies of mathematicians who are really good at fluid dynamics because air is a fluid and they've got models where they run simulations in computers looking at the surfaces and the air flows and the velocities of the air moving over these surfaces and they work out how to balance minimum resistance stuff getting in the way of the car moving for the maximum downdraft or put down force effect to get the best control, the most stable control over the broadest range of speeds to give safety, but also give the ability to go really fast without losing your grip on the road. Something happened. I think, Barris, you'll have to just repeat that question. Yeah, basically, when, you, when a person dreams, which can feel like 10 minutes, is it actually real-time dreaming in real life? You know, the same equivalent. Because I had a dream where uh, an external sound is incorporated into my dream, which is my alarm clock. So and then, then I wake up to it. So it's probably like REM time. It must be like very close. So is it really, if I'm dreaming long, is it real time or is it fast mode or real time mode? I hope that explains my question. Well, what I think you're getting at, Barris, is how do we perceive time when we're awake versus how does that distort or change when we're asleep? And obviously we don't know exactly how we record time because it's it's difficult to do these sorts of experiments on a person. But we have the view that the brain encodes time partly by knowing what the series of events that have happened in what order have occurred to you. So we have an idea as to when in time things occurred across a day and across a year and so on. But also we use the richness of the memories laid down to inform how long something took. So the more memories we have about something, we assume, well, that must have taken a bit longer. But when you go to sleep and you're dreaming, your brain has disconnected all of the usual connectivity patterns, the different brain regions that normally talk to each other and regulate activity. And the, the pattern of brain waves is quite different. And so the brain can summon up memories and create memories and create brain patterns of activity in the spur of a moment but give you the impression, because it's disconnected from the normal way of recording time, how long things took. So a dream may last just fractions of a second, but you think it's gone on for ages. Also, dreams can go on for ages, but you only remember a small slice of them. So you think it was a very short dream, but you were actually dreaming for absolutely ages. So really, in the same way that when we go to sleep and our sense of reality, our ability to really tell what's true and what's false and things disappears, because 
that's what dreaming is. It's an altered state of consciousness. Our ability to understand time is also deformed and distorted. So we can't rely on our sense of time passing when we're asleep like we can when we're awake. Then we have another WhatsApp voice note and we have uh, two minutes for that. Let's take a listen, Joe. What would make diastolic blood pressure be stubborn about being lowered? So if one's taking blood pressure medication and the systolic comes down nicely, but the diastolic remains higher, what exactly is the cause of this? I understand the difference between the systolic and the diastolic reading, well, as far as a layperson can, but I don't understand the conditions in the body that can make the diastolic pressure remain high. Please explain. There's a number of reasons why we get the readings that we do when we take our blood pressure, and the systolic is the top number when you get given a blood pressure reading and that number is usually uh, say in a healthy human 120 the bottom number is usually something like 80 and when you have the top number that's when your heart is beating and it's pushing blood out into your arteries and when the heart relaxes stops beating that's when you get the lower number and that is the effective residual pressure that maintains flow between heartbeats now when you increase the amount of blood returning to the heart, like you go jogging, or you increase how forcefully the heart contracts, that will push up your systolic blood pressure. So when you get excited and you start running, you're getting a lot of blood going back to the heart and the heart's ejecting a lot of blood and so your systolic pressure tends to go very high. And often when you exercise, the diastolic pressure will drop because you open up lots of, of blood vessels to get blood into your muscles. And so the systolic goes higher and the diastolic goes lower. If you have... Uh, drugs on board that treat your systolic blood pressure and bring it down but the diastolic doesn't change the only way that can be happening is if the blood vessels are are refusing to open up any more than they currently are and there's a range of reasons why that would be and um, this often is associated with being a bit older and if you have stiffer blood vessels that can be the case and um, and also if you have constantly constricted blood vessels for some reason as well so I think that would be my number one suggestion as to why but if that is the case it might need a bit of specialist investigation and we're going to wrap it there at exactly 10 o'clock a big thank you as always dr chris smith thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that's investing 20 billion pounds in r&d over the next two years the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities the nation where great talent comes together Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.